Hello and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at healthydebate.ca. My name is Amol Verma. I'm a resident in internal medicine at the University of Toronto. And today I'm joined by Nathan Zilbert, who is a senior resident in general surgery at the University of Toronto. Hey, Nathan, how's it going? I'm doing great, Amol. How are you? Just dandy. So Nathan and I today are talking about two highly relevant clinical topics. I'm actually very excited about our subjects today. The first is a trial in the New England Journal of Medicine comparing transfusion strategies after cardiac surgery. And the second is a study published in JAMA about managing intracranial bleeding in patients on oral anticoagulants. Okay, Nathan, kick us off. Talk to us about transfusion after cardiac surgery. All right, Amol. Thank you very much. So I'm going to talk to you about the Transfusion Indication Threshold Reduction Trial. That's abbreviated T2TRE2. The Titer 2 trial? Couldn't you? I think it's Titer 2. They've uh, done what you have to do to get into the New England Journal and come up with this great acronym that Amol likes. And the background of this is that, uh, as you might expect, uh, cardiac surgery patients are are uh, frequently transfused postoperatively, and there's some uh, debate in the literature about uh, the benefit uh, or harm of uh, a more restrictive transfusion uh, strategy. And uh, as has been shown in, in a lot of uh, different clinical settings, uh, generally speaking, studies show that a, a restrictive strategy usually results in better outcomes, including uh, better mortality. And uh, these investigators from the United Kingdom uh, attempted to answer this question in cardiac surgery patients. So they randomized patients who had had cardiac surgery and who ended up with a hemoglobin level below 90 to either a restrictive or a liberal transfusion strategy. And their primary outcome was uh, looking at vascular complications or infectious complications. And they actually showed those were similar between the two groups occurring in about a third of patients. They also showed similar rates of ICU stays and pulmonary complications, kidney failure, but they did also show that the liberal transfusion group had a lower mortality, which is different from other trials, 2% compared to 4% in the restrictive strategy. So what do you think? It sounds like this is a bit of a replication of the various studies that have happened about liberal versus restrictive transfusion strategies. Tell me what's different about this trial than some of the other trials that have been done. Well, one thing that stood out to me was the indication for randomization and the hemoglobin thresholds that were used between the two groups. So as I mentioned, the hemoglobin level that you needed to have to be randomized in the trial or be eligible for the trial was 90, and that was the threshold used in the uh, in the liberal transfusion group. The restrictive transfusion group, they used a hemoglobin level of 75. So comparing to the TRIC trial, where I believe the numbers were 170, that was, uh, that was one uh, difference that, uh, that stood out to me. I, so I agree with you that it is different that they chose 90 and uh, 75. So most trials in this realm have chosen 100 as the upper target and 70 as their lower threshold. Um, so anyway, they're sort of in the ballpark, but I kind of wonder, do you think this reflects the overall trend of practice moving away from liberal transfusion so that, you know, the upper limit is 90 instead of 100, so that you're already sort of moving towards a more conservative transfusion strategy. I mean, I, I think it's certainly a reasonable uh, explanation for that, for sure. I mean, I, it also, though, makes it somewhat harder to compare 
these uh, results to other studies in addition to the fact that it is a different patient population, but uh, perhaps it does show some overall evolution in clinical practice. Right, okay. And so similar to basically all of the other major trials in this area, they found no difference between the two groups in terms of their primary outcome, right? That's basically been the finding in all of these trials is that liberal versus restrictive transfusion strategies, whether your primary outcome is mortality or function after hip fracture surgery, um, they tend to basically show that there's no difference in the primary outcome. That's right. And this study was no exception in that regard. However, uh, this study's primary outcome was not mortality as it was in some of these other trials. It was this hodgepodge of uh, both infectious and vascular complications. Yeah, I think that's that's a really interesting choice of uh, composite endpoints in their primary outcome. So do you want to just list them um, quickly and, and we can talk a little bit more deeply about it? So the outcomes that were listed included an infectious event, and then they had sort of subcategories of either sepsis or wound infection. And then... Uh, Ischemic events were broken down to uh, myocardial infarction, strokes, and uh, ischemic bowel. And then also uh, different grades of uh, acute kidney injury, which they also uh, grouped under uh, ischemic events. Yeah, so my initial instinct at looking at this primary outcome is that it seems to kind of balance the benefits and the harms of transfusion within the single primary outcome. So, you know, the harms associated with transfusions would be things like uh, in, increased infectious complications, whereas the benefits would be less infarction and less ischemic complications, theoretically. So uh, com- combining those endpoints into a composite primary outcome seems to me to be a little bit counterintuitive. I'd, I'd be inclined to agree with you. How, however, in looking at their data, not only did they show that a, uh, the, the overall combined outcome of vascular and uh, infectious complications was the same between the two groups. They also broke it down in each of these categories, both overall infectious and overall vascular, as well as for each of the subtypes that we just mentioned. And they were actually similar between the two groups. So it's not like there's a counterbalancing of more ischemic events in one group and more vascular events in the other. Yeah, just looking at the subcategories within that composite outcome, they're basically numerically the same. So uh so much for my brilliant uh, critique of the study. but Better luck next time. We have <laughs> one more paper to discuss. So, Oh, okay. I'll try to bring my A game. So I guess the, the primary outcome in most of the other trials, or at least in three of the other major trials that I know about in this area. So the TRIC trial was looking at ICU patients um, and comparing transfusion strategies. There was the trial on upper GI bleeding. And then there was a study in 2011 that looked at uh, hip fracture patients who had uh, a history of cardiovascular disease. In pretty much all of those studies, mortality was the primary endpoint. And I guess you can do that because those are higher risk patient populations where you would have a frequent enough mortality rate that you could use that as your primary endpoint. I guess in the uh, cardiac surgery population, and this was largely elective cardiac surgery, although there was some emergent surgery, um, mortality is going to be a lot lower. Is that right? Uh, well, absolutely. I mean, in this trial, looking at uh, the 2,000 patients that you know were the subset that uh, were more anemic, uh, the uh, overall mortality rate in the two groups were 2% and 4%, certainly much uh, lower than you would find in the GI bleed or ICU or 
elderly post uh, hip fracture patient population, I think for sure. So I think, you know, while it's a, a valid point to raise that this primary outcome is, doesn't allow us to compare to these other trials, it's just, I think, a, a fact a fact of life dealing with this particular clinical question of, of cardiac surgery patients that you're going to need to have a ton of patients in order to have a probably uh, adequately powered mortality trial. And this seems to be, you know, a pretty valiant effort to enroll a large number of patients in over a dozen centers in one, uh, one large health system. So maybe we can get into talking about who exactly were the patients that were enrolled in this study. What kind of surgery did they have? So these were all uh, adult uh, elective, well, yeah, mostly elective cardiac surgery patients. 40% of them were uh, undergoing cabbage procedures, 30% valve procedures. They didn't uh, break down in too much more detail, uh, you know, the, the types of valve procedures being performed. And then there were 20% um, having combined cabin valve procedures and then a much smaller percentage having aortic arch uh, operations. Uh, how many, it was, it was, you said there was about 2,000 patients in the study? Yeah. And what, what did they look like? Were they old? Were they young? Did they have a lot of comorbidity? So they, uh, on average, were 70 years old, and uh, about two-thirds were male. And they had, uh, you know, I think as you would expect, significant rates of uh, cardiac comorbidities. So about 45% of them had class 2 heart failure, just under 30% had class 3 heart failure, large rates of angina, and then reasonable rates of diabetes and previous strokes as well. Okay, so let's talk about the two, I think, surprising findings from this study, uh, both of which emerge from secondary endpoints. So why did they find more death, which was sort of unexpected? And can we believe it? Well, I mean, it's a secondary endpoint, so you can take that with a grain of salt. And I mean, I guess a statistical purist would probably say uh, we shouldn't, we should neither believe the the finding nor necessarily believe that by the it's it's opposite either because uh, it's probably underpowered to answer the question. But I mean, I think at, at the same time, intuitively, we probably can make a, a reasonable jab at explaining why that would be the case in this patient population of uh, vascular disease that having increased oxygen comparing capacity would actually improve their postoperative course. So it's possible that having slightly higher hemoglobin levels is better in this patient population Though, interestingly, it's not like they were having more heart attacks in, in the uh, restrictive transfusion group, that there wasn't really a significant difference in that outcome. So hard to know exactly what it was that mediated the death, right? Right. So the, the second interesting finding was about kidney injury. So uh, it seemed that in the group that had more restrictive transfusions, there was a higher rate of kidney injury. And maybe this plays a little bit more into the adverse outcomes, particularly re- relating to death that, that we saw. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so they did find that when they uh, assessed the patient's uh, postoperative creatinine levels, that those in the restrictive uh, transfusion strategy did have higher rates of acute kidney injury compared to those in the liberal strategy. And uh, that was one of that was one of the uh, differences between the two groups in the subgroup analysis. I think um, uh, one of the major takeaway points for me from this is, you know, pretty much all the other studies moved in the same direction that that uh, restrictive transfusion is better. And 
this is a bit of a cautionary tale to say, you know, don't necessarily overgeneralize that. Uh, and, you know, one of the population of patients in whom this remains an unanswered question is patients with coronary artery disease and trying to figure out what's the appropriate uh, transfusion threshold for those patients. But it does seem like it's probably a little bit higher than uh, for the general non-coronary artery disease patient population. Right. And how much higher, I think, obviously still uh, outstanding and still probably uh, depends on, you know, even just having coronary artery disease is, uh, you know, whether you're having cardiac surgery or whether you're having a GI bleed or whether you're admitted to hospital for another uh, reason, you know, these, you may, there may be different appropriate transfusion triggers in, in those situations, even for people with that, uh, with that medical history. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe then to just close on this point of appropriate transfusion triggers, one of the facts that I found the most striking from uh, both the introduction of this paper and the editorial uh, about the paper that was uh, written by John Spurtis in the New England Journal um, was this finding that there's dramatic variability in transfusion rates in cardiac surgery at different institutions, ranging from between 5% to 90% of patients being transfused, depending on the institution. Yeah, no no question. And I think, you know, for, for those uh, institutions that are probably already practicing a very uh, restrictive or a very liberal uh, transfusion strategy in their centers, you know, this uh, probably uh, is should be thought-provoking for them. Yeah, and hopefully action-provoking. Hopefully, that's that's well said. <laughs> okay, so Nate, why don't you wrap up? Tell us what the major takeaway point is. So the major takeaway point is that in this uh, study looking at over 2,000 patients undergoing elective cardiac surgery, a uh, liberal transfusion strategy was not uh, better or worse in terms of uh, a composite outcome of infection and vascular postoperative outcomes, but there was a a suggestion that mortality is actually improved in the liberal transfusion strategy, which is a novel finding compared to a similar trial design being done in other patient populations. And I think this is uh, both uh, an interesting study and a, and a, and a good uh, example of uh, how we shouldn't uh, overgeneralize high-profile trials to uh, every clinical scenario that uh, seems like it might be appropriate. Okay. Thanks very much. Let's move on. So, I'm very excited to be talking about a study that I think has large number of very relevant clinical implications. This is the Retrace study. It was published in JAMA, and it's about intracranial bleeding in patients who are on oral anticoagulants. So this study specifically tells us information about three topics. The first is how to limit the extent of bleeding in patients who have an intracranial bleed on oral anticoagulants. The second is on the outcomes associated with restarting oral anticoagulation after an intracranial bleed. And the third is on functional outcomes of these patients. So this was a retrospective cohort study in 19 hospitals in Germany, and they looked at patients who were all on warfarin, so only on vitamin K antagonists, no other type of oral anticoagulant. And they extracted data retrospectively from medical records and institutional databases. And then they followed these patients with questionnaires and phone interviews for one year after discharge. So, so tell me about the types of patients that, were, that, they, uh, that they were following up here. Yeah, so they included uh, consecutive adult patients who had a spontaneous intracranial bleed that were taking an oral anticoagulant and their 
they had to have an INR of greater than 1.5. And these were patients admitted between 2006 and 2010. They excluded patients who had an intracranial bleed secondary to some other provoking event. So if they had traumatic brain injury or cancer or other causes of intracranial hemorrhage, they were excluded. So it was only people with spontaneous intracranial bleeding. Spontaneous intracranial bleeding on warfarin. Okay, so what did they find? So really, I think we should talk about this uh, in terms of three different sections. The first was really around extension of bleeding. So maybe before we jump into the results, let's talk about the types of patients that were included in the study. So the characteristics of these patients, they they screened 10,000 patients, and they ended up enrolling about 1,100 patients. The, the types of patients they included, so they were 74 years old on average. The average INR at the time of inclusion was 2.8. Most of them, like 85% of them had hypertension, 50% of them had coronary artery disease, a third had diabetes and strokes and kidney dysfunction. So a multi-morbid patient population. And what were they being anticoagulated for? Yeah, so the vast majority of them, about 75%, were being anticoagulated for atrial fibrillation. 10% had a mechanical heart valve, and another almost 10% had either a pulmonary embolus or deep vein thrombosis. Okay. And at admission, most of these patients were sick, but not terribly sick. So they had the average admission... Uh, Glasgow coma scale was 14, so they were by and large alert, and and that may speak a little bit to uh, some selection bias on who they were able to consent and enroll in the study. So, okay, so those are the patients that, that were included. So now let's talk about, I guess, their three major findings. So their first goal was to predict what are the factors associated with limiting the enlargement of the hematoma or of bleeding. So pretty much all of the patients who presented got something to reverse their anticoagulation. The vast majority of them got prothrombin complex, what we refer to as octaplex here. Uh, And then sometimes with some combination of either vitamin K or fresh frozen plasma. So they found really three factors that were very modifiable uh, that were strongly associated with reducing the extent of bleeding. The first was they had been reversed within four hours. So the anticoagulation had been reversed within four hours. The second was the extent of anticoagulation reversal. So the first was the timing of the anticoagulant reversal. The second was the extent of anticoagulation reversal. And they found that if the INR was less than 1.3, that had the best predictive outcome. And reversing the INR below 1.3 didn't help that much more. So really, 1.3 seemed to be the ideal cutoff. And then the third was blood pressure control. So having a blood pressure of less than 160 was much more likely to be associated with a lower rate of uh, bleeding. And they found that when all three of these features were met, so if they had an INR less than 1.3 and anticoagulation reversed within four hours and a systolic blood pressure of less than 160, only 18% of those patients had hematoma enlargement, whereas 44% uh, had it in the rest of the cohort. So that was an absolute risk reduction of 26%. And in fact, a 7% absolute reduction in in in-hospital mortality. So I have a a couple questions. So, you know, when I read through this and uh, these uh, illustrious authors suggested that 
correcting a coagulopathy quickly and controlling someone's systolic blood pressure was going to be the main factors that affect hematoma progression in someone with a hemorrhagic stroke, my reaction was, well, thanks so much. That's, uh, that sounds sort of obvious to me. You know, I can, you know, imagine that in the emergency department, when someone comes in with acute neurological changes and they think they're having a stroke and they get a CAT scan and an INR and they make this diagnosis, these are the things that are instituted right away. So I wonder what, what we're really learning from, from those data. Yeah. So, you know, it sounds pretty obvious that you should reverse the anticoagulation and you should control the blood pressure and that will be good for intracranial bleeding. One of the important things to know, though, is that we have very limited evidence about this very fact. So most of the recommendations around managing oral anticoagulant associated intracranial bleed are based largely on consensus, uh, expert consensus. And so there's no data to back it up. And there's all sorts of things in medicine that seemed very obvious, which turned out not to be beneficial for patients, for example, having a higher hemoglobin level. And so, um, you know, having data to suggest that uh, these things are in fact beneficial is really important. All right. So why don't we uh, move on to the, the second outcome that they were looking at, resuming oral anticoagulation? Yeah, so this is the other, I think, really important area of controversy, and it's certainly something as an internist that I'm often left uh, dealing with on the ward is a patient who has had a spontaneous intracranial bleed, they were on an oral anticoagulant, and now what do I do? So this study followed up patients one year after uh, their admission. They were able to follow up 720 patients or so, so that was about 60% of their patient population. And in that patient group, they found that oral anticoagulant was restarted in about a quarter of them, 24%. Uh, They found that the average time to resumption was about 30 days. So most people were started about a month after their bleed. And what they found is that at one year, there were fewer ischemic complications in those who restarted anticoagulation than in those who didn't. So 5% versus 15% in those who did not restart oral anticoagulation. And they found that there was no difference in bleeding between the two groups, 8% versus 6.6%. What do you think about that? Do you think that's surprising? I do think it's a little bit surprising, particularly in the light of the general body of literature about uh, intracranial bleed following a spontaneous bleed in the brain having restarted oral anticoagulants. You know, while we would certainly be, you're nervous to restart someone on oral anticoagulant, you know, the, the weight of the literature tends to suggest that it might be safe to restart them. Of course, it's really, you know, you're weighing the benefit of preventing an ischemic event, which it seems that you're likely to do if you're on an anticoagulant and you're at high risk of having an ischemic event. So, for example, in this atrial fibrillation cohort, their average CHAD score, uh, the CHAD score was greater than 2 in like 80% of their cohort. So high risk of having... Uh, an ischemic event, complication of their atrial fibrillation. But how do you balance that against the possibility of having a certainly a more severe intracranial bleed if you're on or blood thinners do, than if you're not? Do we know the CHAD score of the patients who they chose not to restart anticoagulation on? <clears throat> yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. So, you know, obviously the big limitation here is indication bias, which is that the people who are restarted on oral anticoagulation were probably less sick than the people who were not restarted on oral anticoagulation. So to try to get around that, they 
propensity matched the people who are restarted on oral anticoagulation to a control group within the people who were not restarted. So they sort of matched them along all of the factors that they had measured. And they found basically the same finding, which was less stroke uh, in the group that was started on oral anticoagulation, less ischemic stroke, and no difference in recurrent intracranial bleed, which was about 4% uh, per 100 patient years in both groups. I, I mean, it seems to me that this decision is a much more, I would say, nuanced, you know, having to sort of weigh things with the patient and get a sense of what they can tolerate in terms of their own you know, comfort I, I would think that for clinicians looking after this problem, having some uh, statistics and evidence would be very helpful to help educate patients on on this. And it sounds like maybe with the, at least the propensity match data, they you know this this paper gives them some of that. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. I think what's important, so two things. One is I think we absolutely need a prospective, probably randomized control trial to try to answer this question. Um, because the current degree of data just can't, uh, the current quality of data. So the last point to make is that people who have this problem of intracranial bleeding associated with oral anticoagulants have very poor functional outcomes. I guess somewhat unsurprising, but even I was uh, a little bit impressed by this finding. So they found that, first of all, mortality was 30% at hospital discharge and 56% at one year. And then they found that the vast majority of patients had unfavorable functional outcomes 80% at discharge and only 73% at one year. So only about 6% re sort of improved their functional outcome over the course of a year. Uh, so, you know, this is likely to be associated with extremely high rates of morbidity and mortality with this problem. Well, I guess you're right. That's uh, it's a good point, but, I'll, but also perhaps not too surprising. I did have one question I wanted to get your comment on uh, just while we wrap up is, you know, given the explosion of new oral anticoagulants other than warfarin. And it seems to me that warfarin is now becoming, uh, for many patient populations, a second or third choice oral anticoagulant. How do you sort of uh, speak to the relevance of this paper, given that that was the, uh, the only agent that they were using? What, uh, what maybe is still, is still relevant and, and what, uh, what might be missing uh, in 2015? Yeah, absolutely. So, so a couple of points there. One is that, you know, many patients, if not the majority of patients are probably still on warfarin, while that will certainly change uh, in the years to come. So for now, it's still extremely relevant to day-to-day -day practice. The second point about oral anticoagulants and intracranial hemorrhage. So what do we know? We know that new oral anticoagulants have lower rates of bleeding in the brain, but we also know that new oral anticoagulants are more difficult to reverse. Uh, but totally agree with you that this study, you know, is limited in in the ability to comment on on that patient population. So, you know, within the the limitations of this retrospective study, in which there was selection bias in terms of who was enrolled in the study because consent was required. So, uh, you know, the sickest and the healthiest of patients tend to be excluded in that context, uh, and people who have do not treat orders. Uh, you know, don't necessarily get follow-up imaging. And so there's there's a lot of bias inherent in this study. Uh, and then, you know, there is some indication bias in who gets restarted on oral anticoagulants. There are some really clinically valuable findings. The first is that uh, in people who do have warfarin-associated intracranial bleeding, 
The goals should be, at least based on this study, an INR of less than 1.3 at four hours and a systolic blood pressure of less than 160 within four hours of admission. And two, uh, it may not be harmful to restart oral anticoagulants in uh, patients who are at high risk of ischemic events, and it may in fact even be beneficial, and certainly more prospective data is necessary to try and answer some of these questions more strongly. Okay, let's move on, Nathan, and talk about our good stuff segment. So Nate, what caught your attention from the world of medicine this week? So this uh, past week, I read Atul Gawande's latest book called... In one week? Impressive. Actually, I'm all in one in one day, one quick uh, plane ride down to a, a conference. And uh, it is a very easy and quick read. So uh, another reason why I think our listeners might be able to uh, fit it into their to their busy schedules. Uh, but I, I think this uh, likely, in my opinion, is, is his best book. It's uh, called Being Mortal, and it explores uh, end-of-life care, geriatrics, palliative care, uh, and issues like that in, in sort of modern Western society. Uh, I think he does a great job both uh, reviewing uh, medical literature, discussing uh, elder care in Western society, comparing it to sort of some personal experiences from Eastern society, and also discussing uh, in a very personal way uh, his experience with uh, his own patients and with his own relatives. And, uh, you know, I think... You know, no question he's an outstanding writer, but I think he uh, really set a high bar with this book, and I think uh, it would be a, a great read for anyone practicing uh, medicine today. Awesome. I have it on my uh, phone to be listened as an audiobook, so I will, I'm looking forward to digging in uh, at the next chance I get. My Good Stuff recommendation is an article that was published in the New York Times uh, written by Mark Jaff called Finding Equilibrium in Seesawing Libidos. And the. <laughs> I'm got a chuckle out of you, I know. So uh, the author writes about uh, being married to a woman who has Parkinson's disease. And he begins by expressing his own frustration at having a more active libido than his wife. Uh, as may perhaps be reflected in a variety of uh, heterosexual relationships and sort of speaks of the toll that this took, uh, you know, on him psychologically and on their marriage. And then when she was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, she uh, was started on a dopamine agonist. And one of the very well-known side effects of these dopamine agonists is the development of hypersexuality. And he speaks of how the libido tables were turned uh, and suddenly, uh, you know, he was unable to keep up uh, with her uh, needs and desires. And then he speaks about sort of the attempt to channel this energy uh, into something uh, healthy and active. And they sort of channeled it into uh, activism for uh, Parkinson's disease. And uh, then he just sort of talks about what it's like to be a partner of someone with Parkinson's disease. And, you know, I think it was a really refreshing take on something we don't talk about that often uh, in terms of, you know, the effect on the personal and sex lives of, of people and how chronic illness and the various medications that we prescribe our patients uh, can impact people. Well, I have to go. You've certainly piqued my interest, and I'm going to pull that one up uh, right now. 
You should. Okay, Nathan, pleasure to talk with you as always, and uh, we'll do it again soon, I hope. You too, and we'll have a great night. Or take care, because <laughs> this is time neutral. <laughs>